Hi everybody, thank you for downloading the Leeds Book Club podcast. Um, I'm joined tonight by a special guest, um, Ruth Long, who is on Twitter as RF Long and is an author um, primarily within the fantasy um, fiction sort of realm. So welcome Ruth and thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. So I've um, I've read one of your books uh, in the Wolf series, but unfortunately I've read it out of order, so I'm going to have to go back and do them properly. Um, but do you mind letting? I, and obviously I'm a, a fan of your blog, um, which is how I got friends to be friends with you on Twitter. Um, and uh, I know that you've recently or relatively recently blogged about your writing process and how ideas come to you. But do you mind if I ask you about how you became a writer? Was it something you just always had to do, or what was the route you took? It was something I always did, and I remember as, as quite a young kid making up stories. Um, very interesting, I have children now, and I watch them, the way they play, it's the same way I used to play, in that they sit down, first of all, and they work out these elaborate plots and characters, and then they go and play the game. And it's quite weird. <laughs> I remember doing it. So the creative <laughs> process is more enjoyable I, than the game itself. I think so, half the time. They never seem to finish these games, but they sit down and they... They argue who's going to do what and who's going to have which supernatural powers, and uh, it's great fun to watch because I can remember doing similar things myself at the same age. Did um, you ever um, pick a superpower for yourself? I don't think I did. I think there's so many. I mean, how could you choose? Probably flying. <laughs> I know it's 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 uh, um, almost trite at this point, but it just it seems magical to me the idea of seeing the whole world in front of you. Exactly, although I'm terrified of heights, so it probably wouldn't work. <laughs> <laughs> but teleportation, I could do teleportation, that would be alright. <laughs> yeah, yeah the, the no mess version, you know. <laughs> I'd like to be somewhere nice in Paris now, you know. Yes, that would be um, lovely. <laughs> <laughs> but um, then I, I definitely started writing things down uh, quite young, and I remember as a teenager, I would have been, I'd say about 14 or 15. Uh, in a German class in school, uh, writing in a copybook under the desk <laughs> instead of paying attention to German. And uh, my German teacher caught me and took it away, and it was mortifying because I, I was writing a novel. And, of course. Uh, uh, she read it, and I had to go to the staff room and ask for my copybook back, and she was like, oh, I read your book. Very good. And I was like, oh, no, this is so embarrassing. <laughs> Yeah, the last person you want praise from at that point is a teacher. I, I really was not very good at German and still only know, like, Sayens Verdekite and things like that. <laughs> Two words. And, uh, it's it's just it's something I always did, I suppose. Um, then, more more seriously, I, I worked on writing for a number of years. I wrote short stories and um, I was a member of a lot of, of online writing groups, yeah. which really useful to me um, because at the time I found this would be sort of throughout the 2000s I suppose hmm. um, I found an awful lot of the local writing groups here were very literary Yeah, I actually had no interest in writing literary fiction so whenever I was trying to find a group it was impossible because they were sort of looking at me and you want to write much yeah. yeah you want your voice to be unique but not alien so um, they just—it wasn't a mesh. So I got involved with a number of online groups, and that really, really worked for me. Um, and then 
around 2006-2007, e-publishing was really taking off in the States. Mm. And I, uh, I had a short story that was too long to be a short story, but too short to be an actual novel. Yeah. And it wasn't really a novella either. It was, it was that really long short story. I think they now call them novelettes or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't, and I kept trying to cut it and cut it and cut it to make it into a short story, and it wouldn't cut, it wouldn't condense any further. Mm. And eventually, I would given up hope of getting it published in any of the sort of the magazines that I would normally submit it to. So I contacted, I found out about Sam or Sam Hain, uh, the American uh, digital first publisher, and um, they were they were taking anything from I think twelve thousand words at the time. I think they still are. And um, I, I sent it to them on the grounds it was a romance. This it became the world's sister. Yeah. Um, it was fantasy romance. And uh, they, they went back to me and said, yes, we really like this and uh, we'd like to, to consider it. We'd like to do some rewriting. Can you resubmit it to us? But can you make it longer? Hey, when? <laughs> all of the bits I cut out and went, yes, yes, I <laughs> And that, that was my first sort of um, breakthrough thing, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and then they, they also uh, published two novels and um, the sequel to The Wolf's Sister, which was The Wolf's Mate. Yeah. And then um, I also have a third part, which is Wolf's Destiny, but that sort of took it in a different direction from what they wanted. So I ended up self-publishing that. Yeah. It was, it was quite an interesting experience. It was very liberating, <laughs> I would imagine. It, it was and it wasn't. You, you lose. Um, you lose an awful lot of the support mechanism. Yeah. And there's an awful lot of things involved in producing a book, um, which are, you know, you have to have editors, you have to have uh, cover designers, you have to write blurbs, you have to... And when you're working with publishers, they, they provide all of that. Yeah, Even of course. Provide things or should provide things like that. Whereas if you're doing it yourself, you're doing it yourself, or you're roping in your mates. Yeah. Uh, and, and you're, you're sort of <laughs> ringing people up and going, would you mind doing this cover for me? Um, you remember how I lent you that pound a decade ago? <laughs> and um, so you, you sort of, there's goodwill, but you can only push that so far, because, yeah. you know, it has to be a professional thing as well. So I spent an awful lot of time on it, but quite honestly, I would rather have been spending writing. Yeah, well, that's it, isn't it? You have to have yeah. a, a totally different mentality from, from writing in order to do that publication element. And obviously, that's not what you want to be at. Not, not personally. I know other people who absolutely adore it. Yeah. It's great. They love doing the whole package themselves. And that's, that's fine. I just, I don't know if it's necessary for me. It was a very interesting experiment. Um, and I would have to have a very good reason for wanting to get something out there myself. Yeah, food. yeah. Uh, this was the final part of a story, and I really wanted to finish it. Well, yeah, to, for the readers as well. I mean, I'm sure they would want to know how it how it's going to end. <laughs> and I had to, I had people asking me about it, and, and sort of it, it just it wasn't going to go anywhere. So it's like right. Uh, so it worked enough that, that people were able to get the story, and we were able to finish it off. So that, that's super. And. Um, yeah, I've sort of run out of steam here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, so that was your experience with ebooks. Do you do you still use that medium? Is are you still with um, Samin Publishing I, now? 
Um, I haven't had anything out with them for a while. Um, the most recent book I had out is the Dial, which is an imprint of um, Penguin. Mm. It's one of the, the children and young adults imprint. And my most recent book is a young adult fantasy called The Treasury of Beautiful Things. Yeah. And that came out in August. So again, that was a very different experience because suddenly we're working with a huge um, publishing entity with all of this um, PR and everything surrounding it. The machine. Um, machine exactly and it's, it's um it is a machine it's one of those things they have a process and they know how to do it they know how to do it incredibly well yeah and you can fit yourself into that it's and, and not get too stressed about the amount of time things seem to take <laughs> because it does take much longer than than uh, the digital yeah. press pushing and the small presses small presses work really quickly whereas big publishers um i think it was two years between contract and book appearing mm which to me is an enormous amount of time. Yeah. At the same time, that's how they they have everything mapped out and everything is given that slot of time. Um, so it was, it was a very, again, a very interesting experience and, and I really enjoyed it um, because a lot of the, the, the stuff that I would have asked about was just taken away from me. So mm. you mm. still have to be there and, and to do your own, to publicize your book and to be available to people and chat to people, but a lot of things get, get sort of arranged for, for you. you. And you can focus on the writing then. Exactly, and you're, you're, you're able to just sort of turn up at the right time and be in the right place. It's great. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Obviously, you write for, for very distinct groups. I mean, you, you've got your, um, your, your fantasy romances, but you also write for young adults. I know from your blog, um, you've, you've a really interesting one up about your writing process, and I know that it's a persistent idea that comes to you that sort of fleshes itself out once you get to know the characters. Yeah. Are, are the voices different in your head, or do you find that you just use a different sort of mode when you're writing for young adults, or is it a different experience entirely for you? I, I think it depends on the, the character, and, and for me, young adult books or young adult stories are all... The, the whole key point is that, that main character and his or her voice. And that's what's going to make it young adult. What the things they're worried about, the issues they're dealing with, mm. um, the point they are in their lives. Yeah. Um, that, that to me is what makes a young adult book. And um, yeah, it's, it's down to the character's voice usually. Um, I don't think I don't particularly set out to write a, a genre or a or a, a young adult book, mm. an adult book. Yeah. Sometimes that's just what happens. That's who comes in. That's who I'm. I'm, I'm sort of. That's who my character is. So that, that it falls in. I, when I started writing Treachery, I, I wasn't writing a young adult book. I was writing a fantasy romance. Yeah. And it just so happened I finished it, and I, I contacted um, uh, agents, and and they all went, "Oh, it's young adult fantasy romance." And I was saying, "Oh, okay." <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. So there you go. Um. And then what I'm working on now is a, I've been calling it a space opera, but it's, um, it, it might be more sort of uh, trying to nail down exactly what it is. It, it's not necessarily set over a number of planets, so it's set on one planet. Yeah. So it's sci-fi. My favourite um, genre, as it happens. <laughs> <laughs> it's not very hard sci-fi. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, um, I was actually just about to ask, sort of... Um, you know uh, who your inspirations are, and and I, I 
assume because you're a writer that you must be a reader. I know that's not always the case, but you frequently put up little reviews of things that you've enjoyed and, and recommend things on Twitter. So who, who, who are your go-to authors to get you in the mood for a new story? Um, I love, well, one of my all-time favourites from when I was very young, um, and, and I reread them recently, is Susan Cooper's The Darkest Rising series. I've just they're, read them recently, they're fantastic. Oh, I love them so much. I really, really adore them. And particularly the later two, the, the Grey King and Silver on the Tree. Because they just sort of went to a whole other level. Yeah, it just lifted the the whole, like, the way you saw the series. It, made, it, it grounded it, but it made it much bigger at the same time, much I thought. Much bigger and much more interesting and complex. And uh, brought in these layers of, of folkloric history, which is something I'm very interested in. And, is, is a very big thing in, in Treasure of Beautiful Things as well. The idea that we have our, our folklore and our mythology, but it comes from somewhere and it, it's sort of in your rocks and your stones. The other person who does this wonderfully is Alan Garner. Oh, yes. Um, who I also adore. And The Owl Service is, is one of my favourite books um, ever. <laughs> and, and I recently read Boneland. And uh, I was saying to someone afterwards, going, oh my God, that was amazing. I love that book so much. And I was like, what, is, what was it about? I was like, I have no idea, but it was wonderful. <laughs> and, but it was, well, he's lost this, this guy and he's lost his sister years and years ago. And he's just, but what happened? I don't know. I, yeah. I really <laughs> I frequently <laughs> feel that way after Jeanette Winterson. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I put this down to my, um, I remember watching... 2001, gosh, I certainly watched it many times, but in college we started watching it quite a lot. Yeah. And we get to the end of it and everybody go, oh, I get it now, I understand it. And then five minutes later we'd all be going, no, I have no idea what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know what it means. No, <laughs> lost it. it's gone. Yeah. Um, I, I sort of feel that way about um, Boneland and a bit about Redshift as well. <laughs> that I was chatting about the um the Green Knoll books, wasn't it? Yes, yes. Oh, I'm, I, uh, I I'm, I'm planning on picking them up the next time I go home and uh, having a good reread. It's well overdue at this point. I really need to reread them because um, uh, I, I love them. Again, it's another one of those ones from, from my childhood that I adored and um, I, I don't remember them well enough. Mm. Um, and I know I have another back in my head possibly based on a similar idea so that's the other reason I'll have to reread them <laughs> oh, to make sure I mean well all right. of the um all of the authors in the books that we've talked about there's they're they're young adults certainly but there's a dark element to them they're not cheesy if you know what I mean and, and I, I would say the same of, of the the books of yours that I've read that there's definitely a darker thread weaving through them is that do you have gothic uh, something gothic yeah. in your soul writing with children, the, the worst thing you can do is make it cheesy and squeaky clean. I yeah. think they right through that. Um, there was a very interesting interview with um, Guillermo del Toro, who I've probably just butchered his name, but um, about he's involved with this Legends of the Guardians, or yeah. Rise of the Guardians, the new film coming out, and um, he was talking about sort of the, the darkness in fairy tales and the darkness in children's stories, and how it's vitally important to... Um, there was a wonderful quote, which is that fairy tales show us that, that 
that you know evil exists but it can be defeated yeah um but you have to actually recognize something dark and dangerous and see how dark and dangerous it is in order to appreciate that it can be defeated i think that's the really interesting thing in in children's stories and in young adult stories is that, that when you really get into that sort of level of there's something really scary it's that idea of the creepy thing under the bed yeah yeah it's more frightening than a slightly open wardrobe door no I, I mean i i'll still get up out of bed and close it yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's i mean a, a child's mind can can create any sort of horrors that, yeah that, you know, and much worse than the adults imagine um and uh, I, I think that's a really interesting idea to, to play with, that mm. kids are, are well able to deal with things so long as you give them follow through that, you know, that, that it can be defeated, it can be overthrown. Mm. Mm. Uh, and then they'll, they'll go with you, I think. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I know I read a piece in, oh, it was probably The Guardian or something on their website a few months back. And I wrote a blog in response to it saying, scaring children, I'm all for it. Because they were talking about how, oh, that was it, they've started to censor or they were looking to censor um, some of the grim fairy tales oh. and uh, and some of the Hans Christian Andersen ones. Because within those stories, there are some books that deal with um, incest and sexual violence and things that parents were deciding were too mature sure. themes for their children. Possibly forgetting that they grew up on those stories themselves and have, are presumably are, are predominantly well, well, you know, well turned out at the end of it all and i was horrified at this idea of sanitizing kids worlds how do you learn to cope with adversity if you don't you know it's like reading anne frank's diary at the age of 10 it's heartbreaking but it's essential yeah i totally agree i think um i think that's mad i mean we've been having this and having kids now it's very interesting my, my children are 11 and 8 remember um and it, it's fascinating to see how they deal with different things and what actually upsets them as opposed to what is what they're they're happy to accept maybe and what actually upsets them. Yeah. And um, things that upset them are oh gosh, the Polar Express. My my son cannot watch to this day the Polar Express because the boy in it gets into trouble for something he didn't do. And it's so unfair. And it's so unfair. And he's getting into trouble with Sancho. And it's just, it was the end of his world. He got so upset watching it. And yeah. any time it came on, he'd literally like run out of the room. So yeah. I'm not watching this. I can't watch it. Um, so the things that are actually frightening to them, you know. Yeah. They have, and yet he'll watch, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean zombies coming up out of the sea. No problem at all. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, they have this understanding of what's real and what isn't. Well, um, one of them could happen to them, the other one yeah. is not going to. And yeah. kids and are think, far more empathic, I think, than we realise. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, no, it's, it's fascinating to write for, I mean, this was, I'm talking about a younger audience, this wasn't the one I write for, but I think the same thing holds, that mm. you've got to um, let people know that this, you know, there are, there are dark things out there, there's some horrible things, and... Uh, they can be overcome, um, and that's the really that's one of the interesting things. I think that's what stories tell us. Yeah. Um, and I, it's it's a very interesting. It's the role, very old role of a storyteller. Mm. Um, going back to to oral tradition and uh, the way information was passed on and people were taught. Oh, absolutely. Your stories, you, you learn about your world. And Just, 
just as a matter of interest, what um, do your kids read? And if they do, have they read you, any of your books? They, or are they, they still a little young? They're voracious readers. My my son, who's the older of the two, has, has read Treachery. Yeah. And he loved it um, and told me that the green man was completely messed up. Messed up, man. So that was great. Yeah, he, he, he enjoyed it and he tells all his friends to go and read it. And I'm kind of going, technically, your friends are all too young. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, we've got big sisters too. <laughs> and um, my, my daughter's too young as yet, but um, I'm, I'm hoping to work on something for a slightly younger group as well, mm. which is my, my infamous library book, um, which is another one I talk about very regularly. <laughs> I, may so, have, I may have picked up on that once or twice. Yes. <laughs> um, torment myself with the library book. So, um, yeah, I'm hoping that will be for, for a younger sort of middle grade, um, as they say in the States, audience, um, sort of 9 to 12. Yeah. And um, hopefully, I will hopefully finish it soon, because I have the two perfect age group people here exactly. to read it. <laughs> I need my target audience. <laughs> in the house. We can't get away from it. You're just <laughs> too conveniently aged. Um. So regardless of whom your audience is, it seems as though you are very firmly fixed, whether it's um, fantasy or science fiction, hard or soft, you are very much fixed in that um, sci-fi realm yeah. um, as, as a genre. Is it something that you read yourself? Is it just what you've always been drawn to? I, what I've read, and I've always read, um, and I still read now, um, I, I've actually got broader in my reading I, I say in recent years than I, I used to be. It used to be all I would read was fantasy, yeah. and, and uh, now I'll read further biographies and, and, and historical things like that. Yeah, um, more around. But I, I'm still the core of what I read is still fantasy. Yeah, and uh, I love it. I really, really enjoy it. So sort of Neil Gaiman and we were talking about the go-to authors, um, Terry Pratchett, Adore, and um, just people I, I will pick up I'm so jealous. I just walked through the, the bookstores in town and I'm looking at all of the, like, maybe not quite the teen stuff because I'd still quite cheerfully read that, but you know, the much younger stuff. And I'm looking at the variety of science fiction and fantasy available for younger kids now and I'm just green. Where was all of that when I was that age? I would have devoured it. It's fantastic. I read um, Apothecary recently by. idea that's informative as well <laughs> um, uh, you engage a lot with people who have read your works and um, and I know from your Amazon page and and your your blog that you you send out advanced reader copies you seem to have 
uh, to, to have a very open relationship with your audience. Is that something that you've deliberately cultivated or is it just part of the package who you are? It was as soon as Twitter arrived, you, it was bound to happen. Um, well, I, I, I sort of slotted myself right into Twitter uh, very, very happily. <laughs> um, I work, uh, I don't tweet so much as I used to during the day because I, I, my job has changed slightly, but I work on a computer at a desk and um, so it's very easy to have it up yeah. beside me uh, as I work. And um, I just, I really enjoy that sort of format and that sort of in, informal chat atmosphere that, that happens on Twitter. It's, it's very good. Um, I wouldn't say I've, I've cultivated it. Um, I am I am aware of it as an important thing, but I, I'm also very aware that if I see someone who's just going, buy my book, buy my book, buy my book, it's a total on social media, it really irritates me, and I'd, I'd much rather have a conversation with someone. Um, and I do, I, I've made friends I have never met on Twitter. <laughs> Yeah. Um, talking about sort of our love of bad Nicolas Cage movies or um, what, you know, something in the news or, you know, things that, that just stuff that's happening in, in, in people's lives. Mm, mm. I, I really enjoy that. It's, it's good fun. Um, and then, yeah, I, I blog a bit, not as much as I probably should, certainly not as much as I'm, I'm you know, all the sort of guidelines for authors say you should write a blog X amount of times a week. I can't do that. I, I forget and I yeah. get tangled up in doing something else. But I'm I'm generally always around on Twitter and by extension Facebook because I, I link the two together. Yeah. Um I'm on Tumblr a little bit. Um which Oh I must find you and friend you. Yep, go right long on Tumblr. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, that that's basically me going, Oh that's funny click, we reblog. <laughs> reblog, reblog, yeah. Picture of the cat. <laughs> I think Tumblr is just this giant vortex. Nothing new ever goes in, but somehow it always emerges fresh, you know? <laughs> and the little comments you can add on as it gets longer and longer. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, um, but I like, I love hearing from readers. I love hearing what people think, particularly if they enjoyed it, of course. Yeah, oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but I do, I, I like that sort of interaction and. Um, no, I love it when people say, oh, I picked up your book, or mm. um, I'm looking forward to seeing it. it. It's actually really nice when I've been chatting with someone yeah. online, and then they go away and they see the book, and they get it, and they come back and say, I've got your book now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, that's lovely. It's like, mm. <laughs> <laughs> I've made contact with someone. <laughs> no, but, it, uh, but I think um, it, from, a, from a reader's perspective, um, you mentioned earlier, uh, you know, Neil Gaiman as being one of the go-to authors and Terry Pratchett, both of whom have, have Twitter accounts, although I think um, Terry Pratchett's is, is more of a professional one than, than Neil Gaiman, who will put up anything yeah. at, at any time. He's predictably unreliable like that, um, or reliably unpredictable, I suppose, works equally well. Some of my, uh, you know, literary heroes are, you know, would include people like Margaret Atwood, who is also tweets, and it's amazing to these people that you, you know, you can idolize or you can adore or they can frustrate you or challenge you the way that you think, and instead of just being on covers on books in your shelf, you know, you can interact with them, and I, I don't mean like necessarily getting in touch with you, going, oh, I loved your book, but like, people are talking, you can have a conversation with. These people um, that even a, a, a decade ago were far removed. 
away in a in a room in a garage. Yeah. <laughs> um, is it Joanne Harris wrote Chuckler? She's yes. And she's fantastic. She's really entertaining, and she does story time. She makes up little stories and tweets them. Yeah. Um, and so I, I follow follow her. And um, Gillian Phillips is another author who I I really enjoy. Um, and I I'm not sure if I read Firebrand first and then found her on Twitter or talking to her on Twitter and then found Firebrand, yeah. but I not how I actually first got, it was through the book or through her, um, but she's a, she, she tweets as um, characters from the book. Oh, excellent, so I must seek her out. And and has arguments with them. Oh, lovely. It's <laughs> definitely funny, she'll say something and, you know, she'll be writing and the main character will come on going, help, help, she's torturing me again. <laughs> and it's, it's brilliant, it's really, really funny. Um, well, I, I know you. Uh, you've said before that you hear you hear the voice of your character in in your head, and you put in brackets. Yes, I know how that reads, but I mean, you you've not quite taken it that far. <laughs> that far, no, no. I don't think I had to do um, for for a, a blog tour when Treachery came out. I did a I did a blog post as Jack, mm. the hero of, of the book, and that was very odd. I was on a work trip and. Um, I was on a plane, I wrote it on the plane, so I was sitting on a plane from Prague to Dublin, or Dublin to Prague, pretending to be an ancient forest creature, a very teenage boy, and it was very strange. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, you still have to know where your ticket is and where your purse is gone. Um, I'm, I'm not sure I could do that for more than one sheet of paper, it was, it was very odd. But um, I suppose it, it, again, it, it it depends. It depends on the characters. I think some of them just have a mind of their own, mm. um, which I think is a sign of a really good character. Where, where particularly if you're writing something, and uh, quite often happens to me is I'll be I'll have something planned out. I want this to happen, and I'll start writing, and the characters are basically going, no, "I'm not doing that. <laughs> no way you can make me do that." Going over here <laughs> to do something else. And um, I always try and go with that because that's sort of a sign of a character that's working for mm. me. Um, in the, that if they can surprise me, that, that's a good thing. Um, because it's your subconscious is, is taking the story where it actually needs to go as opposed to where you want have it to go. For it to go. There was, um, I can't remember which author, but they had something up on, on Twitter as, as like tips for emerging authors. And they were saying that they, one time, they made a character do something even though it didn't feel right and they still can't like read that book or think of it without feeling like a oh I did something wrong there. That was a bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, J. Michael's Um, I have problems with things. Yeah me too it's fine. <laughs> Babylon 5 and he had a scene where one character was going to murder another character and when the time came to write the scene, a third character sort of stepped in and went, no, actually, it's me, I'm meant to do it, not him. <laughs> and he said he sat there going, it, it, and it was most, one of the most shocking moments of that series, which was full of shocking moments. I'm, well, I'm, des I'm a huge fan of the show, and I'm desperately trying to think of which series you mean. Uh, do you want me to tell you? Oh, yes, please, go on. It's when Kataja is murdered. Oh, God, uh, yeah. And his comment was he had intended it to be Londo and spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> it was all set up to be Londo and the moment came 
severe being holding the poison dart thing mm. uh, instead so severe did it yeah. and it was absolutely shocking at, at the time I think it's alright to do spoilers for something that's sort of nearly oh definitely no I I <laughs> Well, I was tweeting about Much Ado About Nothing, the, the Josh Whedon film that's coming out soon, and um, and mentioned that one of my favourite actors, Reed Diamond, is finally playing a good guy. And somebody like got in touch with me and was like, um, spoilers, some of us haven't read it. I was like, it's 400 years old, you've no excuse. It's Shakespeare. Go and look it up on Wikipedia. Exactly. <laughs> oh, dear. That's, uh, that's another... I, I... Another love of mine is Shakespeare and from college, uh, well, school, actually. Mm. Uh, and it, it just has all the best stories, which he nicked liberally off everyone else. So, yeah, know. but who do we remember? Yeah, exactly. I've <laughs> <laughs> um, so always been particularly um, enamoured with, uh, with Measure for Measure and Julius Caesar. They're just my favourites by quite a lot, I think. Julius Caesar was my... Then Interstellar updates me uh, play, which is sort of the exam we do here at Fifteen, sixteen, isn't it? 15-ish, yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, I still have, I, I saw too many bad productions of it in in, in Dublin sort of cheap theatres where they yeah. were like, oh, the students are all coming. <laughs> Let's do it in business suits for half the play and then switch to Roman uniforms. <laughs> because you know that's art. <laughs> But then again, I mean, the best adaptation by such a long shot, I think, is um, Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet, which was just fantastic. Well, I think this, again, it was one of those things you went to see it and it was like, this is so cool. I mean, this is brilliant. Why has nobody done this? I know, you immediately think the entire world are idiots for not assuming <laughs> that this would be the best thing you could do with Romeo and Juliet. Um, and it's, yeah, again, Romeo and Juliet will also do my public service announcement. Romeo and Juliet. Not a love story. <laughs> not, not a romance. No. It's a tragedy. No, the tragedy of Romeo and Juliet. So no, do not emulate these people. Well, no. talk about censoring um, fairy tales. I mean, technically Juliet's twelve. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, Shakespeare yeah. was a controversial bloke long, long after his death. I know, and um, I, I find it quite interesting that, that people are talking about censoring fairy tales or, or censoring Shakespeare because the Victorians have already done that. I know. That means what we've <laughs> we got is what they thought was acceptable. Who <laughs> <laughs> we'll head back mid-Asian centuries. It's just we'll not right. It's just not right. Our, our pianos so we don't see, you know, or on our table. Mm. We don't see legs. No, God, no, that would be wrong. We used to do this. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up in, in or I, I lived for, for a, m most of my life in Tullamore, and we've got a fantastic castle there called Charleville Castle. And uh, when you do the tour, it's been beautifully restored, and I think it's a university campus at the moment, or an off-site or something like that. But they take you through like the main ballroom, and there are mirrors about three inches from the floor around the room. And the idea was that men could look at that, and they could tell from your hem whether you were married and available, married and unavailable, single and available, or single and unavailable. And like, there was all of this code going on. 
but everybody was dressed impeccably, you know. <laughs> it's a, if you ever get in the area, it's a brilliant castle to visit. Yeah. Like it's um, yeah. it's extremely haunted as well and truly creepy. That's my public service announcement. <laughs> It's a terrifying. I mean, I, lo I love the books. In fact, the three of us that started Leeds Book Club um, in the beginning, we still meet weekly to watch period dramas. So we we watch everything, every version of Jane Eyre, North and South, Pride and Prejudice that you can think of. We've all watched them, and we all love them. But we all like it's it's absolutely horrifying the idea of living in that time. It's it's just so restrained. I know within a week I would just be strung up, you know. Yes. Far too opinionated for that. Well, it's a combination of that, and um, I'm I'm always the, the everyone whenever they imagine themselves in the past, they imagine themselves very rich and living somewhere very nice. Yeah. But they still had to be like scullery maids and, and people whose job was to scrub out stables. And my luck would be I'd end up being one of them. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to live in the past. I'm quite happy. There's a, a fantastic <laughs> book by um. An Irish author. I God, I can't think of her name now. That's really going to annoy me. But the book is called The Ruby Ring. And uh, it's about a little girl who's given a ruby ring for, I think it's her 13th birthday or something. And she puts it on and gets a wish. And although she doesn't realise it, she wishes to go back in the past. And she is actually like a scullery maid in a big house, you know, having to scrub the metal pat floor, uh, sorry, the stone floors and... Yeah you know, collect cow patties for fires and that kind of thing. Was, I was reading it like kind of going, that's so cool. <laughs> yeah, that's a princess. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, um, it's something that's always bothered me about sort of people going, I'm, I'm the reincarnation of, you know, Cleopatra or whatever. It's like, well, you know, are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how do you know you're not the, the reincarnation of a three-year-old colicky child, you know? And we all know your name and how to spell yeah. it. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, all of these things that, uh, it's the other thing I love about writing is that, that all of that sort of things you read and things you watch, it all sort of feeds back into what you write and um, you, can, you can always use the information you gather. And, uh, I drive my family mad because every holiday basically turns into a research trip, whether <laughs> But <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose you I've just look just at the world with that sort of an eye. You know, you look at the world and you see a story. Yeah, well, yeah, I suppose I, I mean, we were in the, the Loire Valley this summer and it was just, it was amazing. It, it's just incredible. We didn't, didn't actually do that many of the shadows as such because mm. you can only really do one a day with small children. It's not fair. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> um, 
we did we did a huge amount we when we traveled a fair amount and um you know every time you walked into these places the, the first thing we felt was the, the, the weight of history and lives and the people who live there and yeah well get, get, you start to get all these little anecdotes thrown at you about people and of course my my brain just goes off with them so yeah. there was the francois the first sister who used to complain of chambord she hated <laughs> chambord because she used to get lost in it <laughs> You're the princess of France. This is the hunting lodge, which is the most amazing, enormous building that has ever been built in France, and you just get lost all the time. Oh, God. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> she never knew which staircase she was going up, apparently. <laughs> and, floor and, you know. and, of course, my mind just sort of builds on this. Well, naturally, that's just fantastic. <laughs> I, I, I was looking into my bedroom, and I think I found the dining room, and... I was looking for a bedroom, but I seem to have found yours. I'll just pop in. <laughs> and then the other one was Shannon, so which is built out across the river. It's, like, it's on a bridge. It is a bridge, mm. um, or a wing of it is. Um, and it um, it was originally, uh, well, not originally, but it was uh, Diane de Poitiers lived there, and she was the mistress of Corey. I can't remember which one. One of the one of the Henrys. Um, <laughs> Um, they were a when, promiscuous bunch. <laughs> when he died, his wife, Catherine de' Medici, kicked Diane out and sent her somewhere else. You know, gave her another chateau. Yeah. But literally kicked her out because she liked it and she wanted the chateau. And she then, because her, her son was so young and she was essentially a regent, she ran bats from yeah. Chenon. And there are two beautiful gardens, formal gardens, one on either side of the, of the driveway up to the... the Shattered, the, the approach to yeah. um, one of which was Diane and the other one is Catherine and they're these amazing formal gardens they're very different and they feel completely different and you really get a sense of the personalities that designed them and had them built but okay, it's, I, it's, I'm so fascinated by this um, I, it was my birthday this year and I begged my parents to take me to Florence as a, as a sort of family thing and yeah. um, and obviously the Medici's were, Medici's were, God, yeah. I cannot say that name for love nor money. That big significant family ruled Florence. You know, everywhere you go, you see the five oranges that was their crest and their rivals built a palace that was even bigger than theirs. So they bankrupted them and moved in. And we were taking these tours and there are rooms with like seven Van Goghs and, and four Raphaels on one wall. It's just kind of, oh my god and i've become obsessed with the women within this family because it's just they were so educated and strong and powerful at a time when very few women you know had that kind of those sort of roles i'm fascinated by them yeah they're incredible and and if you get to the loire it's one to really go and see because it's it's very interesting and i just i had this very strong mental image of these two incredibly powerful, talented, intelligent women. Mm. Oh, Henry, Henry obviously liked clever women. Yeah. He's the bright girl, you know. Yeah. Um, because Diane was incredible. She sort of re-engineered the place. Yeah. This garden is still, um, I mean, it's still beautiful, but it's still sort of one of the uh, most famous gardens in France. And it's formal, but it doesn't feel formal, whereas Catherine's is very much a formal rose garden, mm. and it's all very laid out. And when you look at the two of them side by side, it's really quite 
strange. Yeah. And the idea that the captain just sort of moved in and kicked her out and sent her to, um, I can't remember, it's it's actually, it's not very far. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's it's only a few miles down the river. Um, Chevenier, possibly, Mm, mm. which is now famous for its rose gardens and has an annual um, uh, flower garden festival. Oh, wow. Because of her, the garden she then established there. Yeah. And uh, it's just sort of like, okay. Oh God, I, I, you know, I'm as I'm chatting to you here, I've just looked at the clock and realized that it's probably time that we wind this up. But I feel like we could chat for hours. I, I'm fascinated by all of this. Uh, thank you so much for agreeing to do this podcast. I, I hope that we can um, collar you uh, at some point in the new year, 2013. Can you believe it? It's like we're living in the future. Um, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, but again, thank you so much. Um,